Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Rapare. That's Thursday, the 23rd of June. Ko Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, we preview another blockbuster day. No, we review a blockbuster day at the January 6th insurrection hearings. Uh, we asked the Deputy Prime Minister if it's time to move to the red alert level setting to ease pressure on the country's emergency departments. With only one sleep to go until the first ever Matariki public holiday, RNZ's own Marnie Dunlop joins us with what's in store for our lucky listeners. And check out how old I sound here. We find out how the youngsters will be celebrating. I've learnt a lot about Matariki and that there are seven to nine stars and that you can easily see them in the sky if you track them correctly. I'm going to Kitty Kitty to see my friend. I think I'm going up to my grandparents' house. Maria, welcome to First Up, where we have a someone keeps leaving the thermostat really cold crisis. I'm Nathan Rarity. We begin this morning in Afghanistan where a magnitude 6.1 earthquake has hit the east of the country. The Taliban uh, says more than 1,000 people have been killed. The BBC's John Donison has this report. In remote eastern Afghanistan, there were chaotic scenes as the first military assistance arrived. Local people bringing forward the dead and injured, desperate for help. The quake with a magnitude of 6.1 struck in the middle of the night as many were sleeping. It was midnight when the quake struck. The kids and I screamed. One of our rooms was destroyed. Our neighbours all screamed too when we saw everyone's rooms. With health care basic here at the best of times, makeshift field hospitals have been set up. In this part of Afghanistan, a lot of the houses are mud-built and were no match for the force of the quake. In Guyan district, 1,800 homes have been destroyed. Um, we don't know um, if there are still people in those homes, uh, so we're desperately trying uh, to work with, with local partners to, to get through that rubble and see if there are any survivors. The Taliban is trying to coordinate an aid operation with the Red Crescent and has called for international help. But since the Islamist group took power last year, foreign assistance has dried up. And all this in a country already in the midst of a humanitarian catastrophe, ravaged by drought, famine and poverty. John Donison there. Uh, to the UK we go now, where the second of three scheduled rail strikes is set to proceed as talks to end the dispute resume. Joining me now from London is our man Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. Hello, Nathan. Kiora. Hey, what's the latest on the strike? So we've three days this week of strikes. This is going to be day two tomorrow. The first one took place yesterday, Tuesday, uh, in the UK. And this all comes down to rail workers. Not necessarily train drivers, but the signalers, the people who work in ticket offices, the train guards, and there are a few drivers involved as well. There's a large trade union in the UK called the RMT Union, the Rail Maritime uh, Union, and they deal with workers. They deal with often the more lower paid workers at the bottom end of the uh, transport system in the UK, and they are annoyed about the cost of living crisis and they're saying that their members are being disproportionately affected so they have been locked in horns uh, with the government and the interesting thing about the power of the unions in the uk uh, here nathan and the rmt 
union here are sort of the last big union power is they can disrupt the railway network just like that. They call off, you know, all operations nearly. And there is absolute carnage in London with ver- with barely any of the train and tube networks running. On Tuesday, we had a complete shutdown of the tube network. Tomorrow, there's going to be severe rail disruption where loads of guards, loads of signalers are all going to completely walk out. What does this come down to? Well, it comes down to pay firstly. Inflation uh, at the UK at the moment, it's it's predicted it could hit as high as 11%. Uh, They are asking for around a a 7% pay rise, we believe, the uh, RMT union for their workers. The rail operators are only willing to give them a 3% pay rise. And this also comes a bit an argument about modernising the rail way the rmt are very nervous about modernizing the railway because they say that will end up with their members losing jobs and you'll have various parts of the industry that are automated but on the other side the government says this will help reduce fares and the rail operators say this as well this will help reduce fares for consumers so it's a dispute that's been going on and on talks resume today as you said nathan they've now broken down and we now have confirmation that there'll be another national strike tomorrow across the uk This is affecting various uh, events going on. We also are expecting a strike on Saturday. That'll be the third strike of the week. And, you know, Glastonbury is just one event in the UK that's taking place uh, this week. And there is a real concern for people going to events like that, going to big life events like funerals and weddings, whether they're going to be able to do anything like that at all. The um, you just mentioned inflation there before. I mean, we know inflation's high. We think it's high here, but your UK level is huge as well. It's another record. Yeah, it's going through the roof. So we now have hit the highest level of inflation uh, since March 1982. We knew the consumer rate of inflation back in April because we get it sort of a month late here, obviously, to calculate what it was. In April, it was 9%. We've had the figures out for May today, and it's got up to 9.1%, which may not sound a hell of a lot in total, but it's it's the wrong trajectory, isn't it? It's still rising uh, in the UK. And what's making people more nervous is what's expected to come. The Bank of England, who obviously closely monitor the rate of inflation, are saying it could hit 11% later this year. People are very worried about the cost of living crisis uh, in the UK. We've seen food costs for particularly bread, cereal, uh, meat uh, in particular climbing. And this comes with a backdrop of rising energy costs and people really struggling to uh, to get by with current prices. Yeah. Um, some culture. Let's jump to the culture desk. Hello. Here's Henry at the culture desk. Um, Kate <laughs> Bush says the world's gone mad after going back to number one for a song that I, I hated the first time around, Henry, I'm being honest. No, it's a yeah, it's a classic. I did. No. I worked I worked in music what? radio for twenty years. Not once did anyone ever ring me to go, Hey, can you play Kate Bush running up that hill, please? <laughs> it's a great song. And do you know what? Only now is it getting the credit it deserves. So I'm very disappointed that you've got that view, Nathan. Uh, this is 37 years. By the way, this is the longest time in the UK a song has taken to get to number one. This was hit number three back in 1985. See? It's now hit number one in the UK. It's also hit number one across the globe. It's hit number one in Australia. It's hit number one in Belgium. It's hit number one in Sweden. And it's hit number four in the US. Kate Bush has never had a top ten hit in the US before. And she's hit number four. It's incredible. Uh, Stranger Things is obviously the series that has prompted it. And she was given, she's giving a rare interview. And it's described as a rare interview because Kate Bush very rarely gives interviews. She, Funny enough, one of the most memorable ones she gave 
gave was back in 2012 where she said something vaguely positive about David Cameron and she ended up getting slated and everyone was calling her a Tory right. um, but she gave a, a rare interview today uh, about it and she was saying it's extraordinary everyone's gone mad it's very special and you know what good for her because this song has gone gangbusters and it's meant that Kate Bush is right at the top of the UK music agenda once again and it's Henry's ringtone so that's great Henry <laughs> thank you very much for your time sir Henry Riley out of the UK You are listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radity. 2101 is how you can text us in any feedback. Am I being a Grinch about Kate Bush running up that hill? It was awful, okay? It was... I'd, I'd have to play my songs and I'd be playing songs and I'm like, yeah, here I am and I'm really cool. You know, when you're like 22 and you think you're awesome. So I'm doing that and I'm playing it then and now here's... It just did my head in. Every now and then you get songs that do. However, am I being a a Grinch about Kate Bush? Um, Katrina would like to know what's your favourite Kate Bush song. Bet you can't name more than two. Um, (laughs) And uh, also, what's your current crisis? Newsrooms around New Zealand are going crazy for crises at the moment. 2101, uh, you can text us or email first up at rnz.co.nz. Let's go to Europe now. Um, hopefully Kate Bush hasn't made it to Sweden uh, there's of course the war still raging in Ukraine there and President uh, of France Emmanuel Macron has uh, a, a quite a unique crisis on his hands but joining me now from Sweden is our Europe correspondent Annette Purcell Schulen. Morena Dr Schulen, how are you? Morena, fine, thank you. Okay, um, the, and the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad who we, we found out a little bit about yesterday why are people panic buying? Well, this week, um, Lithuania enforced new EU sanctions against Russia by banning the transport of goods such as construction materials, metal and coal, travelling from Russia across Lithuania to Kaliningrad. Now, Lithuania is a NATO member and its ban is met with fury from Moscow, of course, which is creating a new front in tensions between Russia and NATO, with Russia claiming the blockade will seriously impact the enclave's population. And Russia has vowed to retaliate over what it sees as um, Lithuania's hostile actions and warns of serious consequences. Oh, wow. Um, now, this is an interesting story. I mean, like we've seen horrible things happening in, in political parties around the world. I know Australia, they had a rape case. They were dealing with this one very, very different. French presidential, uh, sorry, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, dealing with a rape accusation against a female member of his government. Can you expand on that? Yeah, this is the last thing that he wants, given the problems that he has at the moment. But um, Paris prosecutors have opened a rape investigation into accusations that a female member of of his government and who worked as a doctor before joining politics reportedly performed gynecological exams on two women without their consent. Now, French media reports said that two women accused the Secretary of State for Development, Crisola Zacharopoulo, of penetration during the exams without, without their permission. Now, Zacharopoulo was appointed last month and the first rape complaint was filed in late May, soon after her government appointment, and another was filed last week. And this comes on top of the fact that two men in Macron's government have also been accused of rape. Their Interior Minister, Gérald Damanin and Damien Abad, who's in charge of policies for the disabled, and both men firmly deny wrongdoing. Oh, horrible, horrible stuff. Let's move to the Netherlands now, where uh, they're being asked to reduce emissions uh, from farming. So there's a protest. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thousands of farmers have gathered at a small agricultural village about 70 kilometres east of Amsterdam. Now, traffic across the Netherlands came to a standstill as convoys of slow-moving tractors clogged up motorway, uh, major motorways en route to the protest location. Now, the government has set reduction targets of between 70 to 95 percent after courts began blocking permits for infrastructure and housing projects because the country was missing its emission targets. And farmers say the government's targets will risk the livelihoods of thousands of people working in the agricultural industry. Clogged up is a great pun when we're doing um, Netherlands news. Um, In Bulgaria, this is interesting, a no-confidence vote here against the ruling coalition. Why, Why has the vote come against them? Well, their vote will happen this evening or Wednesday evening European time. And if approved, the motion could topple the centrist Prime Minister Kirill Petkov and further delay efforts by Balkan countries to join the EU. Now, Petkov's four-party coalition took office six months ago, only to fall apart earlier this month over disagreements on budget spending and whether Bulgaria should unlock North Macedonia's accession to the EU. Bulgaria could face its fourth national elections since April 2021, thereby risking millions of euros from EU recovery funds, plans to adopt the euro in 2024, and hindering efforts to secure stable natural gas inflows after Moscow cut gas deliveries after Sofia refused to pay in rubles. Lots going on. Thank you very much, Dr. Sherland. That's uh, Anita Purcell Sherland, who joins us every week out of Europe. Well, Auckland's mounts... Oops, there we go. (laughs) Auckland's Mount Smart Stadium returns to life on Saturday with the New Zealand men's and women's rugby league sides hosting their Tongan counterparts. And for one of the new players in the Kiwi squad, the occasion comes with a bit of extra significance. Scott Sorensen might be Aussie born and raised, but his family has strong ties to the Kiwis. Grandfather and great uncle, and also his uncles, remember Kurt and Dane? Man, just running so fast with mullets just flowing at the back. It was quite beautiful. Sports reporter Clay Wilson spoke to the Penrith Panthers Ford about his decision to play for New Zealand. I just thought, you know, the opportunity felt right and felt good. And I know my family's extremely proud, and especially, you know, my grandfather and cousins representing the Kiwis. I always knew it was something that was there. And if it ever came, I'd want to take it with both hands. So extremely excited and just love being in camp. You talk about the family history. How much did you know about that? You know, sometimes it can get lost down the years, that yeah. kind of thing, can't it? How much yeah. were you aware of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's something that when I come over here, I, I know to go to my grandmother's place, my auntie's house, and, you know, there's memorabilia on the walls. There's photos, there's books, there's all the above. So I was um, extremely aware and understand, you know, how special it is to my family. I give you a wee um, shoulder tap, a wee nudge every time you go over <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, extremely special. I know my dad's extremely proud as well. You know, I was in me and my driveway during the week in tears. It really does mean a lot. You know, my partner and all her family as well is all from New Zealand as well. So more cheerleaders. Um, so yeah, it's just yeah, such an amazing feeling, and I'm super proud. You still got family here? Can you, yes. You're an Auckland family. Yeah, yeah, no, right? to who? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so how much family have you still yeah, got? Yeah, so uh, grandmother, aunties, uncles, cousins, yeah, all the above. So I think they've already bought a handful of tickets, and they don't even know if I'm playing yet. So just awesome, mate. Yeah, really, really special. Are you the emotional kind? I mean, what's Saturday going to be? Like? 
highlight for you, especially given family history and all the family that's going to be there? Yeah, I think so, mate. Yeah, definitely an emotional kind of person. But in saying that, I'm just trying to be completely present and just taking it day by day. And, if, you know, if that opportunity comes at the end of the week to play, I'm taking it with both hands and, and really, really excited. But, you know, just enjoy it, enjoy it as it comes. And just the occasion for this first test to be involved with for you, yeah. playing a team like Tonga in Auckland where we know what it's going to be like. Yeah. What do you think about that and what are you expecting uh, on the weekend? It's awesome, man. Absolutely love it. Love the bars, love love everything about it. Actually have Tongan heritage as well, so just a special. Being my grandfather was actually born in Tonga and his mum's Tongan, so yeah, just having that as well is just... It's, it's pretty surreal sort it of is. connection. It really is. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's hard to put into words. And I know I've spe- said special about a hundred times, but that's just, it's just what it is. Scott Sorensen, Saturday's double header is expected to be a sellout with more than 23,000 tickets already sold as of last night. It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, a report out this morning says it's the worst time for first home buyers in 65 years. And also Marnie Dunlop tells us what RNZ has in store for your Matariki listening. It's local democracy reporting programme time now. And this morning we're in Tauranga with Alicia Evans. Alicia's been covering the story about a dog owner's 11th hour bids to save her dog after it attacked a vet. Yes, so we have a Tauranga woman, her Rottweiler chopper, allegedly bit a vet in October last year, and he's been in the Tauranga pound since then. Um, We had the court case on Tuesday, and lots of evidence was heard. Um, One thing that was agreed on was the injuries that the vet received, and this was a fractured ulnar, nerve damage, muscle damage, puncture wounds, and she needed a three-hour surgery, and it took about five months before she was able to get back to work for normal. So the judge has reserved his decision. He's gone away. He's deliberating on all the evidence. But until then, the dog stays in the pound, and... Once the judge makes his decision, Chopper will either unfortunately be put down or I guess let free. I'm not, yeah. So Wow, that is some serious injuries. And I mean, and a, and a, you know, a rot- Rottweiler is a big dog uh, that would, can, get, can get in there and, and latch on. I mean, what, what's the, what does the dog owner say about this? Because it's, you know, it's always hard for them. How does the dog owner claim, what, are, what does they claim happened? So, yeah, there's a little bit of a dispute between this series of events. The dog was going in to be de-sexed and they'd agreed, the owner says they'd agreed to meet in the car park, whereas the vet's saying it was agreed the dog would stay in the car and she would assess him from there. And so because the dog was out of the car, he lunged and bit the vet. But, yeah, so the dog owner's sort of her defence is, well, the vet could have done more to prevent the attack. I would imagine the vet story is somewhat different then. Yes. So it's a really tricky situation. The vet said, you know, she's gone out to assess the dog. The dog was showing no signs of aggression. And um, he just lunged and latched onto her arm. And and how, when you have a look at those uh, injuries as well. well. We'll follow that. And, of course, it's uh, it's on the RNZ website, uh, Alicia's story there. You can have a look at that. Also in Tauranga News, apparently it's quite good if you like to cut a rug or just chat too much out because apparently you can stay out partying until the first up team make their way into the office. What's the story? Yeah, 3am. Bars are able to stay open in Tauranga until 3am. So they've always been able to do that. But there was discussions and council around changing that to 2am and the bars were quite against it. They said it would prevent a lot of their trade. The bars in the Mount close at 1am and so you get people that head 
over there after they've been out in the mount, had a few drinks, and then I'll head over to town and continue to party. Yeah. And they were really worried that would trade would stop if they had to shut it too. So they were really stoked. They said it's a win for hospitality that they're able to stay open and keep the vibe alive. <laughs> is anything good happening if you're out? This is I'm just asking you a personal question, Alicia. Is anything good happening if you're out past two a.m.? There's probably time to I- knock it on the head, isn't it? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I don't really head out much, so I can't say. But um, yeah. th- <laughs> back think- in the day, it was good times till 3 a.m. Yeah, 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 true. You're there, you're trying to stay up to see the sun. There we go. Hey, uh, finally, I mean, we're seeing lots of sectors uh, around the country similar at the moment. You've been looking at one school which is really feeling the pressure. Tell us about that. Yes. I was speaking to Principal Andrew King from Autopy School. He keeps a really kind of good eye on the schools and he did a survey of schools and sort of said that they're all really struggling to get relievers. There's not enough of a reliever pool because of, you know, winter illnesses, COVID, there's been a really bad stomach bug going around. And um, they're also spending way too much on their sick leave. So it's taking funding away from other areas like outdoor education or like the garden to table programs. So they're really having to kind of budget and restrict how they teach these kids other than, you know, your normal curriculum so that because of the budget constraints. Yeah, well, huge concerns for them. And it's very hard because it's not like there's just an instant answer uh, that we can give them, right? Yeah, no, and I mean, they've got that funding, but what can you do if you can't get relievers either? It makes it tricky, so. Yeah, it does. Hey, Alicia, (laughs) I know that you'll stay on top of that one. Thank you very much for all your other stories as well. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can see Alicia out around town, probably 2.45 a.m. So just sidle up and say good day. Good on you. Thanks, Alicia. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Nathan. Sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 23rd of June. On this day in 1846, a man called Adolf Sachs walked into the patent office and went, ah. And they went, cool, what is it? He called it's called a saxophone. And uh, this is the day it was patented. I thought it was an older instrument than that, but there you go, 1846. A bit of uh, saxophone fact. The uh, blue guy that plays the uh, saxophone in the Muppets band was called Zoot. There you are. Also, this day in 1868, the first practical typewriter was invented, but it only typed capital letters. The first one had been built in 1873. Uh, sorry, so it, was, it ended up being built in 1873, and they had some problems with it sticking together. So that's how you ended up with all the letters being mixed around. Uh, rather than an alphabetical order, so they didn't stick. In 1912, it was a happy birthday to young Alan Turing. Of course, uh, in 1936, he developed the idea for the Universal Turing Machine, which was the basis of the first computer, developed um, a test for artificial intelligence in 1950 that's still used today. But he was an interesting one I didn't know. In 1948, he was a marathon runner. His marathon time of 2 hours 46 and 3 seconds in 1948 was only 11 minutes slower than, than the Olympic winning time that year. He was good. Uh, and this day in 1984, it was the first time we saw Daniel LaRusso defeat Johnny Lawrence in the final of the All Valley Under-18 Karate Tournament. Yes, the Karate Kid on this day in 1984. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was released in 1988. And in 2016, the United Kingdom voted in a referendum to withdraw from the European Union with 51.9% supporting Britain's exit, known as Brexit, to mark the first time a country had decided to leave the organisation. And that's what happened on this day of our life. 
A just released report has found that it's the worst time for potential first home buyers trying to get into the housing market since 1957. That's according to economist uh, consultancy Infometrics. Their principal economist Brad Olson is with me right now. Kia ora, Brad. Thanks for being up so early. Why, why is it the, the worst time? Well, what we often focus on, right, is that uh, what the price is going to be and what people are paying right now. What we've looked at for our report is how much first home buyers are paying over the lifetime of their loan. Uh, you know, people often say that when those interest rates were at 20%, that was a lot harder than the, you know, 4 or 5% that we're paying now. What our analysis has concluded, though, is that at the moment, the average first home buyer is, uh, for their first year they're purchasing now, paying 49% of their income on their mortgage. The killer, though, is that on average over the 25 years that they're going to be repaying that mortgage, they're going to be paying an average of 33% of their income. That's the highest that we've seen it uh, in quite a while. It's a lot higher than the 21% average over the lifetime of a loan that we saw throughout the 2000s and the 2010s. So what we're saying is not only is it a big commitment to buy a house right here and now, but over time, first home buyers at the moment are going to be paying a lot more for their house uh, over the lifetime of their loan. And I suppose too, Brad, I mean, rents are very high as well, aren't they, of a percentage of wage? So that makes it really hard to even save up for a deposit in the first place. Absolutely. We know it's taking a lot more money, of course, to actually get that deposit. Uh, the difficulty then comes, right, when people are saying, well, my incomes uh, are needing to go up, but they're not increasing at the pace that we need them to keep up with house prices. That's making things more unaffordable. And what's happening at the moment, given how quickly house prices increased over the last year, uh, people often write that, yes, they're buying a home, hopefully, you know, to live in, but importantly as well, people who are paying a lot of money for their house over the lifetime of the loan often are hoping that at the end of it they have something that's made some capital gains, that's made them some money on paper if they need to sell it. What we're seeing at the moment for first home buyers is not only are they going to be paying a considerably higher average amount of their income for their house over the next 25 years, but realistically at the end of that period they're probably not going to have a lot of capital gains because of uh, realistically probably having to buy at the top of the market, not quite as much growth there. So you have a young person now who's facing spending a considerable amount of their income on housing over the next 25 years and they come out of it at the end with not all that much more to show for it. I mean, I know it's hard because there are many factors that aren't just in New Zealand's bubble that make this, but is there an idea of what the trend looks like longer term? Well, it's not pretty. Uh, And I think, you know, we've seen these numbers get worse and worse over time. Uh, We know that, you know, back in the, uh, well, literal decades ago, housing was a lot more affordable in New Zealand. And we've sort of watched this slow train wreck happen before our eyes. Uh, And the risk, I guess, is that unless we get serious about combating it, we've got some huge social divisions that are going to grow in New Zealand uh, because there will be an increasing number of young Kiwis who will just not have the opportunity to get into the housing market. Or if they do, they'll be lumbered with, you know, a, a lot more debt effectively that they have to repay over time than prior generations. So there's a huge difficulty here and the outlook still looks uh, very much like it's going to be a continuation of these current trends where housing is expensive, it's difficult to get into. Uh, We know that housing quality in New Zealand is quite questionable at times, so not a lot of good news here for first-time buyers. That's why decision makers need to be so serious about actually addressing these issues rather than just looking at them and sort of putting out those platitudes around we're going to improve things. We have seen no improvement for first home buyers in recent times, and that is a damning indictment on New Zealanders.
Yeah, Brad Olson, thank you very much for your time. There he is, the Infometrics Principal Economist. Uh, let's have a look at your Matariki money markets. Uh, New Zealand's dollar worth 62.86 US cents, 90.65 Australian cents, 59.44 Euro cents, 51.26 British pence, 4.21 yuan, 85.66 Japanese yen and 1.47 Tongan paanga. Well, uh, day four of the United States um, House Select Committee public hearings into the January 6th insurrection just kept piling up the evidence uh, against Donald Trump and his team and their involvement in it. Uh, So much happened yesterday, but to take us through the biggest talking points of the day is Simon Marks from Washington. Kia ora, Simon. Morena Nathan. Where do we begin with this? What was the piece that grabbed you the most uh, that you thought to yourself, this is the one that uh, was the most compelling? Well, the first point I think to make is that you're absolutely right when you say that all of this evidence is piling up. And that is exactly the kind of sentiment that members of this select committee in the House of Representatives are trying to create. Just this constant drip uh, of more and more information uh, that essentially condemns uh, Donald Trump and senior figures within his inner circle. Uh, I mean, I think yesterday the most uh, emotional testimony uh, and therefore the testimony that really can captured uh, the public's attention came from this uh, former Georgia elections worker, Shay Moss. She is a woman uh, who during the campaign was helping people complete their voter registration forms, making sure that uh, all the ballots got into the right people's hands at the right times, uh, and then was involved in the election count uh, and was personally targeted for criticism uh, by former President Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani and others who falsely claimed that she had been involved in trying to rig the election in Georgia. That led uh, Donald Trump's supporters to start targeting her and her mother. And this is how she spoke about that experience. Yes, uh, a lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, um, telling me that, you know, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. That's, yeah. Were, were a lot of these threats and, and vile comments racist in nature? A lot of them were racist. A lot of them were just hateful. Um, but yes, sir. And there was an extraordinary moment where she was questioned about a claim that Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, had made. He'd looked at a bit of grainy security camera tape captured from a counting centre and had seen her mother pass something to her and asserted that what she had been passed was a USB stick and she was uh, preparing to download data and rig the election uh, using some of that data. Uh, When she was asked what it was that her mother had actually passed her, we learned yesterday that it was a ginger mint and so ginger peppermints suddenly started trending on American social media. Uh, also, it wasn't just her that had people. No. I know that uh, was it the one of the Republican people in Arizona who'd who'd said no, this isn't stolen. He he actually had people showing up and banging on his door. Yeah, absolutely. Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Arizona, who got emotional himself when he described his absolute steadfast refusal uh, to uh, accede to Donald Trump's demands that he help falsify the outcome of the election in the state. On more than one occasion throughout all this, that has been brought up, and it is a tenet of my faith 
that the Constitution is divinely inspired of my most basic foundational beliefs. And so for me to do that because somebody just asked me to is foreign to my very being. I, I, I will not do it. He wasn't going to have any truck with it at all. And we also heard yesterday from the Secretary of State in Georgia, who testified that only yesterday uh, Donald Trump uh, had lied uh, about claiming uh, that uh, he had told the former president that the election in the state had been won by Donald Trump, not by Joe Biden. And that really underscored the fact that these, these uh, false claims uh, from Donald Trump and his supporters continue right the way up to this day. They're not going day after day after day. So when is the next hearing? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. I suspect early next week, but I'm not entirely certain. We're all waiting for the big Supreme Court decision on abortion, which could happen uh, tomorrow and start dominating the headlines then. Uh, but they are absolutely going to uh, be dragging these hearings out all the way until September. Uh, they believe chipping away at the possibility that President Donald Trump's got a political future, chipping away, they hope, at Republican votes in November's midterm elections. But, you know, there is a bit of a risk in all of this for the Democrats. They're looking over their shoulder now at events that took place 18 months ago in an America where people are struggling to pay for groceries and can't keep up with the soaring costs of petrol. Uh, so it remains to be uh, proven that the public is as concerned about the events of January the 6th, 2021, as members of this select committee are. Simon Marks in Washington, thank you very much for your time. Coming up to 20 to 6, I'm Nathan Rarity here and first up on RNZ National. So between now and 6, we'll hear from the Deputy Prime Minister. Also, Marnie Dunlop previews this weekend's RNZ Matariki coverage. I've got a not, I've got a not knowing what's happening in morning report crisis happening right now, but I'm going to have that fixed. By Corin Dan, kia ora, how are you? Yes, you'll have that fixed. Good morning, everybody. Yes. Uh, we will get uh, more reaction to Phil Pennington's good story yesterday around the, uh, non, well, the non, I don't know what the word is, compliance, non-prosecution, the non-dealing with people on restricted licence who, who are taking passengers, t- teenagers mm. mainly, the fact that there's been uh, very little... Uh, no crackdown at all really on that it seems over the last few years so we'll talk to the police about what is going on there it generated a lot of feedback this story uh i think people can relate to it and understand there's a lot of pressures on teenagers there's issues with people needing to drive for jobs happening since that was introduced i mean come on Exactly. No, no, yeah. I understand. Absolutely, it has. Uh, but the question is, why have the rules then? Uh, yes. and, and young drivers are, aren't as experienced at driving, and they do have more crashes, and there's all these yeah, sorts of issues. Do. So anyway, we'll talk to the police and get, some, get a handle on what is going on there, because uh, it is a complicated issue. It's not just all one way. Uh, let's, uh, we'll, go, we'll, we'll go to the Afghanistan situation as well. We'll try to speak to someone in Afghanistan of this uh, terrible earthquake there that has killed over 1,000 people. Hmm. New data for first home buyers. I don't yep. think this will be any great surprise either, but there's always this debate about whether the baby boomers had it worse or whatever with high interest rates, and uh, Infometrics has done the numbers and says it's worse now. Mm. It is worse now, and particularly because it's the top of the market. And cricket, Luke Ronke, uh, we'll talk about the Black Caps and the, try and get some details on the team and how everybody is. They've all got, well, not all, some of them had COVID, obviously. So hopefully oh, everyone's gosh. fit and rearing to go.
All right. Thank you very much, Corinne. Well, look, hey, tomorrow is the first time Matariki will be celebrated as a public holiday in Aotearoa. So what we did was we sent our producer, Leonard Powell, out to hit the streets uh, just to find out what people are going to be doing. He bumped into the students and staff of Teatatu Intermediate who were by the fountain at Albert Park as they spent the day in the city on a school trip. So he asked the teachers and the kids about their Matariki this year. We've been doing lots on Matariki in school and learning about why it's a holiday and why it's important. It's been quite interesting. I've really actually, the first year, really understood the Matariki celebrations and learned all about the different stars. It's been very interesting working with the school children. What have you learnt about Matariki and have you got any plans for this weekend? I've learnt a lot about Matariki and that there are seven to nine stars and that you can easily see them in the sky if you track them correctly and my family are just hanging out with friends. Well I'm probably just going to be staying at home and hoping to see the stars mostly. I think I'm going up to my grandparents house and gonna swim at the beach even though it's cold. Yep. I'm going to do a row game. What was that sorry? A row game. It's where you have a map and a compass and you have to try and find checkpoints and like run around all over the map and get through. Isn't that orienteering? Yeah, it's orienteering, but it's a little a step harder. Me and my family are going to, on this big walk around this island, somewhere near Rangitoto. I'm going to Kitty Kitty to see my friends, so hopefully we'll have a good view from there. Well, uh, lots of things going on. We are joined now by Marnie Dunlop, who's going to be one of our presenters in a, of a big multimedia Matariki special, which kicks off at 6am tomorrow morning. Kia ora, Marnie, how are you? Oh, kia ora, Nathan. Oh my gosh, those voxies made my heart warm. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that just gives you so much hope, eh? Hey? Like, <laughs> for our future. And like, that's where we're going, eh? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And I think, I think it's quite wonderful. It's our own special thing uh, that we've got there as well. What, what do you, um, tell me about what's in store for tomorrow. Yeah, so we'll be on air from about 6am to 11 um, and we'll be broadcasting the official ceremony live, which has been filmed at Te Papa Tongarewa. Uh, and that, the actual Hotaku ceremony will start at about 6.30. But for us, for our show, you know, we're talking to those on the committee, those who have dedicated their lives to revitalising the Mātauranga, uh, as well as checking in with people around the country, what they're doing in their communities with their whānau. Uh, and lots of music and probably a lot of banter uh, from my Fanonga Julian that no one wants to listen to now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's pretty pretty cool for you though. I mean, this is like, you get to do it. This is the, uh, in the history, when it's written in Wikipedia or pub quizzes, who was the uh, the first ever Matariki special presenter? It's you. That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, poor RNZ. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think going to be in the Wikipedia pages. Well, I'm going to write it in. <laughs> No, but it's um, it is really special because this has been something that our our tipuna and you know Maori have been before they even came to these shores have been celebrating and looking to Matariki to to guide to guide our people, uh, and so for it to be in, entrenched in um, in legislation quite 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 literally. Uh, and for for our tamariki to not even know, uh, you know, they they won't have to go to quizzes and be and and be asked how many stars in the matariki cluster because they will already know it, uh, and that's the beauty of that. I didn't get, we didn't get that because it wasn't a, a, the rec- the reclamation has been gaining traction just recently, hmm. I think. And so for for our kids, they're not going to have to they're not going to have to 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 know what it's like to not know, and and I think that's really beautiful and. It's just a, it's a really special time for, for Aotearoa 
And for those who um, who don't want to, who have who've pushed back on this, um, I've received quite a lot of emails saying that you know that it's a it's a load of hocus pocus, and I really want to push back on that because it is not. Everyone has something that they can connect with, a star that they connect with, or just the the kaupapa of reflecting, acknowledging the present and looking forward. I mean, it's really hard for anyone across the globe not to be able to relate to that on some level. Yeah, and you want abuse, you, you want to say something about Kate Bush, that'll get it going on an RNZ text line. Goodness me, the <laughs> feedback I've had this morning. Far out! Calm down, everyone, it's just the morning. We've got a holiday coming up, things are nice, it's all going to be very good. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Everyone cuts home and just enjoy my for the hero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, look, Marnie, hey, best of luck uh, for, for you and Julian for tomorrow and also as well, I hope you have a, a wonderful long Matariki weekend as we all start to develop our own traditions on it. Anna, you too, you too. Cheers. Thank you. This is Marnie Dunlop, who uh, yeah kicks off the celebrations on air tomorrow morning at 6am. Well, South Auckland GPs will offer free appointments for the second weekend in a row in a bid to curb the pressure on Middlemore Hospital. County's Monaco DHB are paying GP practices up to $350 per patient to try to stop people going to the emergency room for ailments that could be treated by a doctor. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has said moving back uh, from orange back to the red alert level setting to ease pressure on our hospitals would require a law change because it is set up in a COVID framework. So I asked Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson if it's time for a rethink. The most important thing to say at the start is that we do have a process for assessing the traffic light framework and actually that's due with us in the next week or so, the latest update on that. So, you know, we we continue to take the advice of public health officials there. I do think in terms of where we are, though, we just have to consider how much impact the change to Orange to Red would actually have of the things you're listing off. You know, Omicron is obviously in the community. Um, We've been managing it because we have had relative high levels of vaccination, but it has spread far and wide and has stayed at at higher levels of infection than what were forecast. Unfortunately, this is the bit of the pandemic where we're seeing an increased number of people who have COVID and when obviously that is now reflected in the death rate. But if we do look at the whole of the pandemic, we're still one of the countries with the lowest death rate. So this is the bit of the pandemic that we're really feeling the full force of it. At least we are doing that in a situation where it's the least severe of the variants and we've got the greatest level of protection. In terms of the of the overall health system, you know, we always have pressure in wintertime. You'll go back and you'll look in the archives, Nathan, and you'll see lots of stories from wintertime about hospitals being full up. When you throw COVID into that, and the fact that we haven't had a flu season for the last couple of years and therefore more people are likely to be susceptible. It's kind of the perfect storm where we are now. We're making sure we're getting in there and providing as much support as possible to our our health professionals and we'll continue to take the advice of, of the experts around what we should do. But for now, there's some practical things people can do. They can continue to wear their masks and actually masks are good for flu as well as they are for COVID and also just make sure that people do stay home when they are unwell because that will ultimately help stop the spread. What about providing a free flu vaccine in the same way as the COVID vaccine was? Is that, uh, is, I mean, is that something we're able to do? 
it isn't something that we are doing at the moment, and, and we have increased significantly the number of people who can get uh, a free flu jab. Uh, and we are, we know, we have gone over a million people now who've been who've taken up the flu vaccine. And certainly, you know, for those older New Zealanders, those in the vulnerable populations, we are making sure that you can get free access to the flu jab. Many, many businesses um, will give it to their employees free now. And so we just encourage people as much as possible to get themselves in there. And certainly for for a large number of people, pregnant women, Māori Pacific over 55, others over 65, people who work in the community, particular health conditions, all of those people can get it for free. So they could should get in there and do it as, as should everybody else. Thinking about the emergency departments, we've spoken to, uh, you know, we've had some interesting discussion here on the show. I spoke to a, a GP down in Southland last week it was you know explaining they've got a lack of GPs down there because a lot of people like to go to specialisations but it still doesn't change the fact they're they're pretty it's, it's like they're being overwhelmed a lot I know last weekend and this weekend South Auckland GPs were offering free consultations do you know did that make a difference to Middlemore's emergency department last weekend? <laughs> Yeah, look, we, we, we meet on a weekly basis with the senior health clinicians from around the country and we'll get a, an update next Monday. It's a two-week program at Middlemore. I understand there were some concerns about the advertising of it last weekend. I think it's had plenty of publicity this week. And so we'll be reviewing it next Monday and see what the impact is. And, and this is the kind of thing that we do need to be doing, taking a bit of pressure off those EDs, um, making sure that people know they can access primary care uh, it's one of the reasons in the budget we we put you know nearly half a billion dollars into primary care is because we know we need to do better there. We know we need more people being able to access commute care in their community so they don't go to the hospital. So we'll certainly take a look at the success of it. And one of the things about moving to the New Health New Zealand model is rather than 20 different approaches around these issues, we can find out what works and implement it quickly. Do you think as part of that it's time to invest more in those 24-hour health clinics? Yeah, I mean, they, they have uh, varying degrees of success and support. Obviously, the way our you know, health system is funded is that people see the hospital and see it as a place where they won't be charged, whereas they might be charged at, a, at an after-hours clinic yeah. like that. Yeah, uh, they, but, they charge you know, like 80 bucks to join, you know, which yeah, is why I and, think and a lot of people just go straight to hospital. This is right. And so these are the models, you know, we do have to be looking at different models of care. Ultimately, what we want is people not feeling the need to go in an emergency situation to know that they can access primary care themselves early on, make sure they're getting ahead of any concerns that they might have. And and as I say, that's why we've invested significant resources in community care. Um, we have had issues, as as the person you were speaking to said, about you know having people coming into the GP workforce. We're training more doctors. We're making sure we're bringing more people in. We've had about 10,000 extra people added to our health workforce over the time we've been in government, and we just have to keep making sure we train people up, bring people in. It was reported this week there's a doctor at a 24-hour health clinic on the north shore of Auckland, saw 62 patients in 12 hours, and he says he's not the only one. I mean, it feels to me our health system's in a crisis point at the moment, isn't it? Well, our health system needs severe and significant change, and that's the reason why we're doing the health reforms 
And when we were putting the reforms through, I was being told by the opposition, why are you doing this in the middle of a pandemic? This is why, Nathan, because our health system for too many years has been underfunded. It's financially unsustainable and it's inequitable. And and these are the biggest changes in a generation to the health system. Um, We need to get on with them, obviously, because New Zealanders deserve a high quality of care wherever they are. Yeah. Another thing that was going on uh, is obviously Jib. A lot of the Jib, Jib debacle, and I know one of the big shareholders basically dumped them as a client and went elsewhere and told them do better. Should heads roll at Fletcher's over this? Well, you know, I mean, obviously that's in a sense a matter for the the shareholders of Fletcher's and there's certainly shareholders who are calling um, for heads to roll. The perspective I tend to take on it is it's a really good example of the fact that our building supplies sector in New Zealand is not operating the way we need it to. It's now the the next target from the Commerce Commission. We've done the petrol companies, we've done the supermarkets, now we're moving into building supplies. There is definitely in the case of GERB a situation where you've essentially got one supplier, that supplier has not been able to meet demand um, and we've ended up in the situation we're in. We've been working with the broader building sector on you know, what other products can substitute, how we can support that happening as quickly as possible uh, and, and we've just got to make sure that, that we don't have the situation. Fletcher's itself do have more product coming on stream. They've got a new factory that will open soon. Jib is a very good product and you know a lot of New Zealanders want to use it but there are other products as well and I want to congratulate Auckland Council They've moved to remove from some of their consents the requirement for jib so other plasterboard can be used. We've just got to make sure we don't end up in a position where we're so reliant on one product that we know there is a problem, there is a supply problem. It means construction you know, grinds to a halt in certain places. Yeah, and I guess we and we also want to make sure the standards of the other ones you can get, you know, we don't end up going through a something similar to a leaky building thing again, eh? Absolutely, and the certification process is really important. And again, I've heard people in the last 24 hours say, you know, just pass a law, click your fingers and, and let the product in. No, it does still have to be certified. There are certified alternatives, though, and so the work we're doing at the moment is making sure that we're doing all we can to support people to bring that into the country. And this is an area where it, it is a private company, but clearly because they've got such a, a hold over the market here, we've brought together this expert task force to give us advice on how we can both get more jib, but also make sure we've got other products that are quality that are available. That's Grant Robertson. As we head towards uh, the end of the show for this week, Nolene says, Morning to Nathan. I've been out checking this morning's Matariki stars. I had the constellation tattooed on my right forearm for my 80th five years ago. Way to go, you. Good on you, Nolene. Um, that's, that's brave. It's really, really cold. Look, have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Thanks very much for all your abuse this morning on the text line. It's really lifted me as I head into the weekend. Um, doesn't make it a better song. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. Uh, get first up all weekend on the pod, and we'll be back in your ears on Monday.